0: Well, Hannah, before we get started, uh, I just want to lay out a scenario. Um, It's 1990, uh, thereabout, and uh, all three of us are kind of been partying all night and we're sort of like stoned and drunk and five years old, (laughs) right, five years old, (laughs) hanging out with Boris Yeltsin. and. You stumble into a grocery store to get some food because you know you're fucked up and hungry. <laughs> and and Boris is just absolutely enamored with the tabloids next to the
1: checkouts.
0: He's <laughs> uh, the bat boy.
1: <laughs> and and also the frozen food, of course. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Boris, Boris does look like a guy that probably... Um, you know when when things opened up you know when you know the era after Gorbachev was doing pizza hut commercials and stuff a guy that probably <laughs> lived off tv dinners and canned food
1: i can see it actually yeah it sounds pretty accurate <laughs> I, I'm, although I'm... Go i ahead, feel I'm like his wife probably would prevent him from doing that but if she was gone he'd just be like no it's <laughs> man all the way who is boris
0: Yeltsin's wife what is what is her story
1: I don't know that much about her, except the fact that she was kind of religious.
0: Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, That sounds
2: like a very Eastern Kentucky thing. Like just a 'er ne'er-do-well guy that's married to a super religious woman that like, you know, keeps keeps him in line.
0: (laughs) Well, I think Boris Yeltsin was like, didn't, what, isn't there like a really famous story about him like getting found, passed out drunk like on the White House lawn in in the (laughs) mid-90s?
1: Yeah, I think it was, I forget if it was him who was the one who was wandering around trying to find pizza or someone else. Uh, But yeah, um, he had a bit of a drinking problem, to put it nicely. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So so
0: funny. Um, Well, so uh, yeah, I just wanted to lay out that scenario because I thought it was really funny. It's just uh, the, the, the promises of Western society. It's like, of all the things that, like, you could sort of potentially see someone, you know, coming out of the Soviet bloc being interested in, um, of, of Western society, it's that. It's, like, the tabloids next to the checkout lines. Just being enamored <laughs> by that is really insane. <laughs>
1: yeah, although I kind of get it, especially yeah. with supermarkets, too. Totally. Well, like- and also
0: a lot of those stories are just made up and uh yeah a lot of them (laughs) (laughs) most of them
1: why some of those stories are even made up (laughs) Uh, all the ones about aliens are correct though that's what i was implying
0: yeah yeah yeah. absolutely Absolutely. that's what i was implying absolutely (laughs) um well go for it well you know so yeah in the sort of um vein of made-up stories Uh, We'll just introduce our guest this week. This week we have Hannah Gaze. Um, Did I say your your last name right, Hannah? Yeah, you did. Okay. Um, And we're talking to Hannah about your recent article in The Baffler uh, called Psychic Healing at the End of History. By the way, I guess before we get started, um, Hannah, you're immortalized in the New York Times as having... (laughs) tweeted at <laughs> a Tanden, why are you <laughs> tweeting at a grad student at two in the morning?
1: Yep, yep. <laughs>
0: so, you know, congrats on that. That's pretty good. Thank you. Just Thank laying you. out your bona fides you. here
2: before we really get into the meat. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I that that's actually, that's all I've done in the past two years is, it's really the reason why I went to grad school is so I could Stuck with Nirotanda. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is a good reason. To there. <laughs> yeah, v- yeah, better than most reasons, I'd say. Um, fair, fair. Yeah, Hannah, what is your uh, sort of topic or topics of uh, study and research?
1: research? Uh, well, I'm a master student, um, so I'm mostly doing coursework, but I'm focused primarily on Russia and the far right. Uh, so the far right here, and then connections to Russia and interest in Eastern Europe, and then also kind of like within Russia proper, ultra-nationalists, um, fascists, neo-Nazis. Nazbol types. Nazbol types, yeah. <laughs> all, the, all the good red-brown alliance stuff uh, that really only makes sense in a Russian context. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, well, today we're talking to you about uh, cons- conspiracy theories, I guess you could say, in also a Russian context, uh, in the fall of the Soviet Union, um, yeah. specifically about like what, what was referred to as I just love this word extra I'm not saying it correctly, I'm saying it like an American. Um, <laughs> That's okay, <laughs> <laughs> just a great word though. Um, yeah, basically, like TV, TV quacks, people who like claim to be able to do psychic killing and um you know, self-care, homeopathic medicine, positive thinking, stuff like that. Um, so I guess before we get started, though, I wanted to just talk about, like, the context of that. Like, why, wh- you know, what was the sort of context in which these uh, extrasens um but also the sort of conspiracy theories that came up around them, what was the context of, of that? Why? Why was this not happening earlier than the late eighties and suddenly started happening in the late eighties.
1: So it's always actually been around. Um, I mean, Russia, like here, like pretty much most European countries has had a really big population interested in anything from extraterrestrials to like bizarre conspiracy theories. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of discussion of extraterrestrials, uh, in the, in the Soviet era, too, um, and also interest in like psychics. I think the KGB, like the CIA, was trying to run similar tests um, to explore whether that was something that could be weaponized. Uh, but what happens in the late 80s is that things open up, uh, culture opens up, and there's much more of a, the interest in this can go mainstream. Um, so people can go on TV, do their weird healing seances, and do something that the party wouldn't have necessarily let them do before.
0: Yeah, and it sort of happened in this, like, um, you know, so you've got, like, maybe this sort of, like, actual institutional policies like Glasnost or, or what they called Glasnost. Um, but then you've got, like, maybe what you could consider, like, maybe the breakdown of... I don't know, dogmas and beliefs. Uh, just this sort of, like, sense that, well, as you wrote, I think it's like, or you didn't write it, you quoted somebody, it's like, it was like an era of, like, thickened history. It's like when <laughs> the pace of events outstripped the moment of the movement of institutions and the understanding of leaders. Um, so, like, yeah, what? how did that contribute to the sort of rise of, I don't know, conspiratorial thinking in a society that had, well, to be honest with you, I don't know a lot about Soviet society before this, so I can't make any generalizations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a big fa- factor and a big part of it was that um, everything was just crazy, and you're—I mean, there's another term that pops up. I mean, I'm sure you, you guys saw Adam Curtis's film, Hypernormalization, right? Oh, yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah. So that's actually used by a historian and theorist to talk about an era before that where people were just starting to realize that meaning had started to break down and that what was being said by these institutions wasn't true. Um, And I think in that period of thickened history, what what you start to see is that people had already realized that what was going on wasn't really the truth and what had been put out wasn't the truth. Um, And there's an effort to grapple with that, especially as everything is falling apart. I mean, you have the rise of these various nationalist independence movements um, throughout the Soviet bloc um, later domestically in Russia, but that happened a lot later compared to some of the other Soviet states.
2: Yeah, I saw I saw Jacob Bacharach tweet something the other day when like all the Boeing 747s like all, all those were going down and he said something. He said anything your elementary school teachers were telling you about the Soviet Union when, like you were I'd say we're probably all around the same age right probably late 20s early 30s somewhere there about yeah is absolutely true of the United States right now. do not you will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah
1: um i think i think it's definitely accurate i think it's not quite I think it's nowhere near as bad um i think adam curtis especially kind of takes that bit and runs with it maybe a little bit too much at times um but (laughs) definitely within the trump era i mean what you're seeing is the manifestation of kind of how that chaos and breakdown of meaning happens like whether it's fake news or um, hostility towards journalists, or like these right wing black jobs, like Jacob Wall having a fucking press conference outside of someone's <laughs> house today. I mean, <laughs> that was hilarious. It's amazing.
0: Well, and the, I... the funniest thing was there was like a garbage truck trying to pick up garbage, and you couldn't even hear the Jacob Wall and the other guy. <laughs> and so yeah. it was just this. Con- it's like it's like Monty Python or something. It's comedy. <laughs>
1: And it's just like you find all these weird parallels to some of these same stories. Um, I was reading the, the other day, working on a research paper on a certain type of like conservative far right movement in Russia. And one of the early manifestations of it was just this, like, they'd be kind of like the alt right if they were bigger into memes and like, maybe stupider. Um, <laughs> but it, it the author was just describing what this like discussion circle did as, well, they didn't really do anything, but they just got drunk a lot. <laughs> 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 and it's kind of like that. I mean, you, you, you have all these like weird events happening. You have no way of like contextualizing them. Um, when you do try and contextualize them, just chaos runs all over the place.
0: Yeah. It's, it's like, it's almost like the people in power, what happens is like they have to make sort of concessions to that just sort of implicitly uh, acknowledge that everything is just sort of on borrowed time and that the sort of established order of things is no longer really acceptable. Um, but I don't know, you just sort of enter into this limbo period where like nobody's really sure what to do and sort of events happen at a like sort of breakneck clip um and I and I feel like you know if there's anything I n- I don't know a whole lot about the sort of dissolution of the Soviet Union other than like it just seems like Gorbachev uh, who was you trying to pizza hut commercial right right who was trying to, <laughs> to Tom showed me the pizza hut commercial for the first time just the other day but just uh just this just this sort of like I don't I don't really want to call him an idiot but just like kind of just a bumbling fool like or just what like maybe maybe if i had to put it in a different way was maybe completely unaware of his role in history or or his time in history or or maybe had read it incorrectly i don't know regardless he was it just seems like he just bungled it for a half decade and then things just <laughs> unraveled it's know. hard to
1: it's hard to say because there's a, i mean there's a debate going around Soviet historians um, has been going on forever. And there was a Twitter poll the other day that encapsulated it perfectly, which was, the question was, was the fall of the Soviet Union inevitable? And it was 50% yes and 50% no. (laughs) Um, Because it's really unclear. I mean, like, on the one hand, he was bumbling, and there were a number of different things that he probably could have done. Um, one of the what one of the big ones would be cracking down on some of these independence movements. Right. But then the question is, if you crack down on the independence movements, and what happens after that? Right. I mean, if you use force, that turns it into something else entirely. Um, and it's really it it's so unclear. I mean, he clearly knew, didn't know what he was doing, um, but at the same time, it didn't really seem like any of them knew what they were doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah it's kind of like did you you ever watch death of stalin yeah Um, twice
0: actually (laughs) great great movie it's hilarious uh very dark though um it's kind of like that but like under completely different pretext it's like so i don't know i guess the historical context for this is that like the soviet economy was completely um just falling apart like the wheels were falling off um and, you know, their standard of living wasn't uh, as high. Um, and so, you know, there was this, as I understand it, there was this maybe sort of debate in the early 80s as to, like, if you liberalize society in terms of open it up for free speech and things like that, would that, you know, encourage economic growth or is it the other way around? Is it like that you can only have a liberalized political society after you've sort of liberalized the economy and and brought in markets and all this. And so it just seems to me that there was a lot of different like ideas floating around, a lot of uncertainty about the future. And I don't know, things just sort of went off the rails.
1: Yeah. And then you had, it's that, and then you had a pretty big conservative faction that didn't want liberalization to happen. Um, So this is kind of where the net come in because they were the ones who didn't want any liberalization they had everything not necessarily that things were fine per se um but that this was going to lead to the breakup of the USSR and I guess they were right um <laughs> in a way uh but you have them pushing back on it and I guess one of the big other factors too is events like Chernobyl yeah um, yeah where you have the party saying no, no, nothing happened, nothing happened, and then the rest of the world is like, no, guys, we're getting these really high radiation levels. Something happened. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't normal.
0: <laughs> um. Well.
1: Also, why do you have so many firefighters? Over there? <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: I think there could also been another similar situation, and and I need you to sort of check the veracity of this statement here because um i think i saw this on youtube (laughs) but is it true that the soviets once traded a ton of warships for like billions of dollars worth of pepsi (laughs) effectively making PepsiCo the seventh most powerful military in the world and i guess they just ended up scrapping all the stuff uh
1: no but isn't pepsi trying to go into space
0: uh, I can't I can't remember. That's I don't know. like right now? Like right now they're, they're yeah, trying to
1: right now. I don't know. What's the
0: it, what's the uh, objective? Are they gonna like make the Pepsi symbol on the moon or something?
1: Space Pepsi. The
0: space Pepsi, yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. What's your source for that <laughs> claim? Or what was the context of it? I don't know. I was uh
2: I think I was I forget what I was looking at, but it was in preparation for this. And then, you know how, like, when you're just on YouTube and it goes to something else?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was
2: some dude that was talking about the history of fast food uh-huh. in the USSR. A lot of it during this period. And, like, you know, like, the like the images of, like, the people lined up for, like, 12 city blocks to go to McDonald's and shit like that, you know. And then yeah. one of the things was that, uh, I guess, I don't know if it was, was it, gosh, was it, Bre- no, it wasn't Brezhnev. Who debated Nixon? Khrushchev. Khrushchev debated Nixon, yeah. Yeah. I guess he really liked Pepsi. (laughs) And so, like, at first it started out with just, like, sending a bunch of, like, Stoli here in exchange for some Pepsi. And then it got to the point where, like, they were, like, something had happened and, like, they couldn't get Pepsi anymore. And so later on they sent a bunch of, like, warships. That's and incredible. the CEO of Pepsi at the time remarked that remarked that he was disarming the Soviet military quicker than the U.S. Army.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, trading Stoli for Pepsi is a really hilarious uh, idea.
1: Worships too. Worships.
0: Well, <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I like that. I like that more.
0: I, <laughs> more. I'm a
2: um, Coke man, but I mean, it's a pretty fair trade.
0: <laughs> um, but well, speaking of Adam Curtis and Chernobyl, there's an amazing Adam Curtis documentary from the, I think the 80s or maybe the early 90s about nuclear power. Um, it's mm-hmm. called A is for Adam, um, and he really gets into Chernobyl. Um, yeah, it's just an incredible event. Um, just, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you say that like it's
2: WrestleMania 13. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you had these like Soviet apparatchiks, like flying through nuclear clouds like right. as like like as sacrifice. Like they knew what they that they were like absorbing all this radiation and they were like were you know, like they were putting themselves on the line for like <laughs> I don't know. It's it was it's a really crazy film.
1: Well the cr- the craziest thing too is then all the people who end up going back there and then like the whole stalker culture around it too right right which, which is just wild i mean so, i can't imagine going there and just, that's like, what yeah. roadside
2: picnic is kind of kind yeah. of based on a little bit
1: well Rhodes, roadside picnic happened before that
2: oh okay. so, right
1: yeah so of the movie it, it's really weird because there's the movie there's a the short story and then chernobyl happens and that i think is like seven years later?
2: Yeah. Oh, no, okay. uh,
1: I forget what exactly when the movie came out. Um, but yeah, it's weird. Uh, and they always mention it, too, whenever you go to Tr- Chernobyl. I went there for a day a couple of years ago on one of those like stupid tours that they have. Wow. Yeah, it's do it's really have, weird. Do
0: you have like radiation protection gear, or do you...?
1: <laughs> no, they spend all their time telling you about how it's okay... <laughs> don't step on that
2: spot over there it's like the Simpsons video game from the early 90s when the plant blows up you just kind of have to avoid it just Um, walk
1: around yeah
0: so so okay so yeah you had things like you had things like Chernobyl you had things like uh, these attempts to sort of liberalize or open up Soviet society to what they were calling like market reforms and all these Mm -hmm. other things and so in that like sort of environment you have the rise of a whole sort of host of maybe sort of conspiratorial ideas like i had written down like a at one point the so the central soviet press agency said that there were aliens and that they had touched down in voronezh i never gonna be able to say that correctly um
1: yeah it was in european russia
0: yeah, and you had a sort of rise in right wing, obviously a nationalistic, anti semit, anti semitic conspiracy theories. The most fascinating, by far, is the this new chronology, um, which you could that is a that is a rabbit hole in and of itself, uh, which I would love to read like Flamenco's, like seven volume thing on it's called history fiction
1: or science
0: can, can you give volume, can...
1: The, the seven volumes that everyone who espouses new chronology has clearly read all
0: of right right there have to yeah the,
2: the idea of new chronology is pretty fascinating um, can you give us like maybe the abridged version not the full seven volumes but the, you know <laughs>
1: So it's a baby of Anatoly Fomenko, who is this mathematician. And he came up with this idea that there were two major breaks in traditional chronology. Um, So there's one, I think, in the fourth century. And then the second, I think, is in the 11th or 12th century. Um, And this was, of course, all done by the West. Um, And it was done by the West to uh, push down Russia and make Russia the victim of like this global conspiracy uh to deny its role in human history um and of Uh course yeah it makes sense right yeah (laughs) um so fomenko was this mathematician so has some street cred there i guess be like i I don't know like what the equivalent of he he would be nowadays maybe like Neil deGrasse Tyson or something. I had read that he studied like topology or
0: something. He studied like su- yeah. surface. I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it.
1: <laughs> Supposedly smart guy. Yeah. Basically, um, so he gets all these other people interested in it. Like Gary Kasparov, who is now a really big Putin critic on Twitter, wrote um, a book recently called "Winter Is Coming." All about critiquing Putin and everything in the like Donald Trump is just like Putin. He's very he's very big on like pro Russia Gate stuff. Um, Fascinating
2: the, the the chess champion. Yeah, for
0: folks out there, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And for some reason, I people bought into this.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, for some reason, a lot of people bought into the idea that Russia had. Uh, <laughs> Significantly altered uh, Our elections
1: (laughs) Although I think it's a little easier to think that Like Jesus Christ was Alive and like running around Like it's a little harder (laughs) to believe that Jesus Christ was running around In like the 12th century
0: Um, (laughs) Than it is that that Putin altered the election Outcome (laughs) Yeah
1: yeah. I feel like one of those is a little more attached To reality Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh <laughs> uh, shit I see what you're saying Yes. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah For sure. um, I don't really know what's going on with Flamenco now or New Chronology it was really big in the uh, 90s um, and I think Kasparov has I don't know what happens if you ask him about it I've tweeted at him a couple of times asking him what think so? <laughs> <Any> <laughs> no, he thinks any bots what
2: he'd take the bait
1: no he hasn't blocked me but he's never responded
0: that's a bummer, that's a real bummer From yeah. what I
1: understand it
0: uh, Flamenco's thesis Is basically that um, Yeah, that What happened in the sort of Chronological assembly of events Is that th- Events and people got copied And so history is just a long series Of plagiarism That like <laughs> people, the same people are Just repeated over in history um, And that like I think that he he had even said that like ancient Egypt stretched into the 17th century, like and that uh, you know he moved ancient Rome and, and he said that the new t- events of the New Testament happened before the old test the events of the Old Testament. Um, it's pretty it's pretty wild stuff.
1: <laughs> but he's mem- he's a mathematician, so obviously That's, he yeah, do it's it.
0: a mathematician, right? Yeah,
1: it's, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that book.
0: That book that was real big, like, maybe 10 years ago or so, that was, like, lies your history teacher didn't tell you. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was a little more, it was woke. It was, like, it told you, like, history that, like, you know, your conservative history teacher didn't tell you. But this is the opposite, and it's hilarious. (laughs) And by
2: the way, children, take out your
0: mercury feelings. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it—it it has more of a trappings of like trying to be intellectual and smart. Because there are other similar ones, like there's a theorist, Lev Gumilov, who puts, puts together some various theories about like how there are like different cultures and how they interact with each other, and they're like the little people um, who a lot of anti-Semites have then run with as being Jews. Um, and somehow like the little people can like never fit into these real cultures and it creates all these problems. Um, but it's always wrapped up in like much more academic language and incredibly dense so that to see through the bullshit, you have to read seven volumes of (laughs) (laughs) Anatole Fomenko, um, why history isn't real, right? So let that be a let
0: that be um, a lesson for all you pseudo historians out there. If you want to make a, a rigid theory of history, I guess even Marx did that to some degree. To really understand historical materialism, you kind of have to read Hegel. And yeah. who wants to do that?
1: <laughs> I know I go to school, but I don't want to read Hegel.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, no, there was all kinds of crazy, you know, pseudoscience, pseudo history, uh, Atlantology, you know, uh, sort of Russian centered, you know, uh, history of the lost city of Atlantis. Right? Is that correct? Yep. Um, just a lot of stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, the 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 real crazy stuff is the, um, you know, t- I guess you could say like two guys really, mm-hmm. An- Anatoly Kashparovsky and uh, Alan Chumak it's my Americanized Schumach would probably be more accurate. Um, who were these two guys and what, what was their impact on Soviet culture?
1: So Kaspar- Kasparovsky and Schumach were both um, Soviet psychics who, and there there were a bunch of these actually. Uh, they weren't the only ones, but these are probably the two most prominent. Um, they also disliked each other greatly. So they were both on Soviet TV um, Chumak was in the morning, I think, and then Kasparovsky did his various seances. He did a couple of them they were a lot longer. Um, Chumak's were a lot more focused on various maladies. So he'd start out the day with, oh, well, today the illness is allergies. Um, and then just start doing this like weird hand wavy thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's yeah.
1: <laughs> like one where he looks like he's petting a dog. <laughs> uh, very special, right? And pe- and people, I'm not quite sure where the water thing came from, but one of the one of the things that people do would watch him would be to take these like glasses of water and stick it by the TV, so that then that would suck in the healing rays that were coming out of Chumak going like this. Right. um for 15 minutes a day and that would help though um so then kasparovsky was a little more crazy so he he popped up in 1988 uh doing this teleseance um where he was helping a woman uh do surgery without anesthetic yeah um of course the woman later on was like it was, no, just was <laughs> it was nothing like what you said. <laughs> it hurt really bad.
0: It felt yeah. like someone cutting into me. <laughs> but Because they were. right. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so he, he did that, and then God managed to get a primetime series of seances, We usually around like an hour, hour and a half, and draw these giant crowds in. We'd read these letters from people all over the place talking about their issues, and even when we get people up on stage, uh, you can find some photos of him, like, walking around, even some now where he's walking around and there'll just be people, like, flopped on the floor. Um,
2: so he's like the the Soviet Benny Hinn.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. When I was reading that, that's what I was thinking. Because, I mean, I was raised Pentecostal, and, like, my family were, like, Oral Roberts acolytes, you know? And so, like, this shit didn't seem all that weird to me. Yeah. <laughs> to me, you know? It's kind of a parallel. And I think probably... Does that have something to do with, like, you know, the inherent, like, religiosity of America versus, like, how the Soviets, you know, were anti-religion and all that kind of stuff?
1: I don't know. I mean, because... What I, what I mean by that is
2: like, is that why, like, maybe uh, uh, Schumacher, Kasparovsky, whoever, is that, like, maybe why it wasn't funneled in that, like, sort of spiritual context? It was more like a psychic, like, you know what I'm saying? Like an yeah. occult thing, yeah, almost.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's a combination of that. I think it's also because at that point, I mean, there is an institutional Russian Orthodox Church at that point that is oh, okay, growing. Okay, okay, um, uh, But they would see this as a threat, um, that it was pseudoscience. Uh, but if you actually look at polling data, people who are religious in Russia, and I'm sure this is the case with here, um, people who are religious are more likely to believe in superstition yeah. superstitious beliefs of any kind so psychic healing right uh evil eye um but yeah i don't i actually don't know why it didn't have that much religious content i mean i suspect it's probably just because it was party it was chosen by the party it was like this had to be approved by the party to go onto broadcast tv um and maybe combining the two would seem a little too weird um Plus, there is a big, pretty big tradition within Soviet Party leadership, like kind of, kind of being into this sort of thing. Like Brezhnev had a faith healer oh, tied yeah. to him. Yeah.
2: Um Well, even like one of the uh, one of the preeminent American faith healers was Peter Popov, who was born in Soviet Union.
0: Right. Yeah. His, I
2: mean, maybe like he was exposed to that at a certain point, and just kind of take it took it over here in like the more like you know (laughs) christian charismatic context
0: what what wasn't kashborovsky also um he was a bodybuilder and he uh his like um i can't remember what they called it like emotional volition uh therapy or something like that it's like he claimed it helped the soviets win in the 1988 olympics the soviet bodybuilding team win in the 1988 olympics
1: yeah, that's part of, um, I think the, I think the teleseance was really what brought him into like more mainstream popularity, but that was like,
0: that was where he got his, his yeah, started. Where he,
1: yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. Which, okay.
2: <laughs> I, do you think that that might've just been a uh, cover for anabolic steroid use? <laughs> <laughs> so, so this guy's got some purchase. He's on TV. This is why we're doing good. It's not windstrawling. Right. <laughs> <all that stuff. laughs> right.
1: Well, especially if you look at pictures of him, too. He's, like, this big, burly guy with, like... Kind of looks like he was could have maybe been using steroids. I don't know. He reminds me a little bit of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ah, yeah. you know? uh, okay. Just in terms of, like, the skin and, like... Yeah. Not exactly looking so hot. Um-
0: <laughs> <laughs> he did turn out to be, like, a right-winger or in the 90s, right? He tried to make a go in politics as a nationalist.
1: Yeah. He, uh... He joined the, uh inappropriately named Li- liberal democratic party um, <laughs> europe is so funny like that you could have like
0: fascist groups they're like yeah we're the liberal democratic party <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: uh, yeah and i mean he was in the Duma for a little bit and then he just and left uh he was but he was like one of their most high profile people yeah in addition to zirudovsky uh, who's this really bombastic um crazy guy uh it was him and Kasparovsky who were the biggest names at that point.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I had read in, in another thing that uh, I think that you had linked to in your article about how it was like 70, 57% of Russians would you know were polled that they would lay aside whatever they were doing to watch Kasparovsky's seances. like when when cash privacy was on tv like the streets would be empty like you know in the sense like it you know in the same way that they were empty when they played like big blockbusters on television and stuff what does that say like what does it say about what does it tell us about how material sort of conditions or political reality affects people's i don't know sort of like psychology at the sort of like interpersonal level
1: Um, Like just in terms of what this means for them individually. Yeah, yeah. And I
0: guess uh, where I'm going with this, the reason I ask where I'm going with this is because like you in your piece, you draw a sort of parallel to our current moment, you know, and how there's a rise in um, sort of conspiratorial thinking. And you had linked to Anna Marlin's book and we had her on a few weeks ago, and so I kind of just wanted to talk about that, you know, like how, like instability, um, not just materially, but in the sort of realm of ideas, the marketplace of ideas. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) We
2: almost made it through without mentioning the marketplace of ideas.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like... (laughs) Right, right. I, like, how does it affect, you know, like, uh, you know, like how sort of pseudoscientific ideas get, gain purchase in mainstream, and how, like... There's an increase in grifters and hucksters and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because I I feel like it, it was unclear to me what that 57%, like, who those people exactly are. Yeah. Um, but it definitely does seem to be that if you're in unstable material conditions, if you're in, I mean, Anna talks about this, obviously. If you're um, in kind of unstable political conditions, economic conditions, I mean, these are really it's helpful to have some kind of like outside meaning um, where you don't necessarily have to be thinking about, Oh, well, I can't get bread down the street. Um, this is, this is something that I can kind of attach myself to. And the th- the thing that came up when I was doing research for this though, is that a lot of people didn't seem to think of it that way. Um, so I talked to one journalist who had done a short book on the- short book on kind of like just the general boom of like psychics in the 1990s. And people didn't really seem to be thinking, these viewers didn't necessarily seem to be thinking of it as, Oh, I'm doing this because, um, I feel like I'm disconnected from kind of like the ability to live my life in the world. Uh, it really did seem like they were just, genuinely into it um so it's hard because i mean i think i do think like it has a pretty strong impact but if you're doing research on the ground and talking to like some of these viewers it's unclear as to whether they would necessarily think of it that way
0: yeah
2: do you think there's any parallels to this kind of stuff and what we see, and and when I when I bring this up, I'm not like subtweeting anybody or anything or <coughs> making fun of Tanya or usual third, but like this rise in sort of like interest in the occult and like you know fortune telling and tarot cards and all that kind of stuff, like you're seeing now. Uh, and I, I I I wrote this piece for Popular like back in the fall about the Ouija board in the '70s when all these like race riots were going on and like. Newark and Detroit and just all over the country, Ouija board sales actually outpaced Monopoly. And oh, wow. I think it's interesting, you know, when you're dealing with like when things are really bad and you're in the collapse, this stuff becomes more popular. And I wonder if that those two things are... Sort of related to what we're seeing now, people sort of, you know, embracing the witch aesthetic, and you know, like the right. the, the the group that came together to curse Brett Kavanaugh and all that stuff when <laughs> that went down. Like, you know, you, you see like kind of the American version of it a little bit,
1: I think. Yeah, definitely, and I think it also is connected to to kind of like a broader understanding of spirituality, also. Yeah, like if you have fewer people associated with like an institutional church or kind of like a particular. like, faith structure or um, set of beliefs. Like, it's a lot easier to get attached to these kind of things. Um, Yeah. That's that's interesting, though. I didn't know the Ouija boards being that big.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. They were huge. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: and I guess, like, we search
0: for meaning, you know, in a lot of – I don't know. It just kind of like – it's a testament to how humans will search for meaning – and just about anything, you know, just uh when when things don't really make sense anymore, it's like you have well. something to like sort of, you know, attach your hope to. Yeah. I feel like you know yeah. that's you know, this stuff's
2: no more or less crazy than anything else, but
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well I I had read are you familiar with the writer um she's kinda controversial, Svetlana Alexevich? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she had written a book. Uh, well, she uh, hadn't really written it. She's kind of like Studs Terkel in the sense that she does like sort of oral history. Um, but there's a book uh, that she wrote called Second Hand Time. And it's about uh, it's just oral history of the, you know, the last years of the Soviet Union. And um, and I thought it was interesting. Like one of the things um, that uh, is in it is that like towards the end like intellectuals were just selling all of their books either they were selling them all or just uh packing them up like nobody was really reading anymore um you know you could go to use bookstores and see you know uh, old copies of gorky and all these other uh writers and it, and it's just it just kind of like goes to show you how there had been a sort of like collapse of intellectual consensus around that time and and i think that it seems to me like that contributed to um, this situation where, yeah, you could have, you know, these sort of like TV preacher types doing seances on live television.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mm. I mean, I I actually I haven't read secondhand time, but I read she did a really good oral history collection about Chernobyl. Yeah. Um, which is yeah, it's wild if you get a chance. Yeah. Um, I think Keith Gessen translated it, but. Yeah, I think that's definitely a contributing factor because, I mean, intellectual debates and debates, especially between nationalist groups, is really important um, throughout like the 60s, 70s, 80s. And I mean, there were various different warring camps and that continued, but it's sort of, I think it's sort of became clear that that wasn't necessarily the direction that culture was going to go. Um, like people weren't necessarily going to be buying I mean fake journals were always important, but it wasn't necessarily the direct, the main driver of change
0: yeah um
2: why, why was she controversial?
0: well i I wouldn't I don't know because it's like this whole she won a Nobel Prize for literature, so it's like is it mm-hmm. is it history or is it literature? It's um, like on the
2: Bob, like the Bob Dylan thing. <laughs> what did Bob Dylan? When Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and
0: oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: It's, it's kind of one of those situations. Yeah, okay. I didn't know if she had like some sort of you know, Naz Skeletons skeleton <laughs> in her closet,
0: and we're just like quoting kind of her. <laughs> no, <laughs> she's no, she's brilliant. She wrote this great history. No. Speaking of Sir, Sir Nobel, have are, are, are you uh, have you watched the HBO show yet? i started
1: it um uh I it, it was really dark
0: was it was it <laughs> yeah That's, hell yeah well two of the actors from uh that show the terror are in it and uh and i fucking love that show that shit was badass i
1: love that show the terror yeah yeah
0: it's awesome <laughs> um yeah so i'll, I'll definitely watch chernobyl
1: yeah it's better than the the various there was a movie to your noble diaries that came out a couple of years ago it was just absolutely awful do not watch it
0: yeah okay Okay. i
1: watched it for a piece and was like i'm not doing this ever again (laughs) (laughs) if i could just like blank out the past two the two hours i spent doing that i'd be happy (laughs) Uh, (laughs)
0: um yeah speaking of watching something for a piece you had written a, a long time ago i think maybe about a year or two ago about that movie red sparrow and i wanted to yeah I wanted to watch it for this episode, but I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't stream it. Did you ever watch it Tom? Um,
1: it's so bad
0: yeah, I think that you' you had written it it's like the best like it's like the best example of America's current fascination with just Russia in general. It's like tailored to that fascination
1: yeah, it's like hot girl He's really bad she does very bad things. There's a little sex in there. But yeah, <laughs> mostly just evil hot Russian girl.
2: Absurd. <laughs> Hannah, what was your thoughts about the Americans? Did you ever watch that?
1: I yeah, actually I love the Americans. Is it um,
2: is it uh pretty uh Yeah. I'm I'm making a a gesture here folks that I says it's pretty spot on.
1: Yeah. It was like, definitely it was definitely spot on. Okay. Um, I think I don't know. I mean, I know people have had some issues with it, but I think they put a lot of effort into really trying not to be hysterical. Yeah. I mean of course the whole thing is ridiculous. Like <laughs> how how was it that Philip is able to run around Washington DC looking really not that different in all these different disguises
0: <laughs>
1: and never get caught. Alright. Um <laughs> So, it's absurd, but, I I mean, they had some pretty good help. Um, I think Masha Gessen was the one who was doing a lot of the translation work for the Russian, Uh put in a lot of work kind of getting actors who would be good. So, it wasn't just like, rando, they pulled off the street. (laughs) Do your best Russian accent. (laughs) Here, it's transliterated for you. Right. Go on.
0: Yeah. I've still never seen it. I need to watch it.
1: You should. We'll um check it out yeah
0: um well i that's uh i think we we've, we've thoroughly uh examined psychic killers at the end of the soviet oh, union is there anything else you want well to- i'll
2: just like to close with this Hannah. like it what what would you say if people were interested on the subject what are the two or three texts or articles or whatever? the you know the uh uh ancillary sort of reading you could do to
1: so mark bennett's book um was really good uh resurrections for brutals um i read this really i linked to it in the piece it's this really weird book called soviet uh let me pull it up actually uh soviet, um mokus i think uh that was just like put together all of this weird literature on like how psychics were real but it's also media commentary and actually i don't really know how to make sense of the book except i quoted a few times yeah um that's definitely that's definitely good if you want the more like um avant-garde take uh but yeah definitely mark bennett's book it's good. The, I something
0: that I forgot to bring up earlier is that um, it's interesting that the so, the Central Soviet State Agency News Press Agency or whatever had said that aliens were real, um, because I think that that, that got a lot of purchase uh, in uh, American um, you know UFO circles, <laughs> um, to the <laughs> extent that I was telling Tom about this a few months ago. There's like You know, if you peruse or browse through, like, Amazon Prime's, like, really shitty uh, documentaries they have on there. I found one one time that was all about how the KGB knew that the pyramids were built by aliens uh, before anybody else. And that they had, like, kept it a secret. Um, (laughs) And so I think UFO conspiracy theorists in the 90s thought that, like... If we could just get into the KGB files, we could find out like what they knew about uh, UFOs and aliens.
1: <laughs> it would be awesome to try. Oh, yeah, if they ever open those up. Well, um, is, isn't there a theory that like
0: Stalin was? I wasn't. Sta- I think Stalin was like fascinated with Americans' fascination with conspiracy theories and with UFOs in particular, right? Like, wasn't he fascinated by like our sort of scare panic about War of the World Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio series? Have you ever heard
1: that? Uh, not particularly, although I could, definitely could see it. There's he was a... really interested also in religion, too, despite cracking down on it a lot. So, <clears throat> man of contrast. Man apparently. of contrast. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: there's a, there's a theory. Uh, I heard this on Terry Gross one time on Fresh Air. <laughs> what there's a theory by this woman i don't remember her name now she wrote a book on area 51 it's just called area 51 that the aliens that were pulled out of a ufo outside of roswell were actually like sort of deformed or scientifically experimented on russians um russian Almost children um, who had been put placed inside of a UFO type thing and sent to America to basically like <laughs> induce some sort of uh, you know like a panic. Panic. Like a UFO panic. Exactly. Exactly. Because Stalin was you know because you know Orson Welles had the famous tele radio teleplay on War the Worlds in the 1920s and it freaked everybody out. They didn't know that it wasn't real and. Um, and so this this fascinated Stalin. So the theory is he sent people in the UFO... Uh, to Scare Americans, and uh, I, look, I wouldn't be telling you this if I hadn't heard it on Fresh Air with Terry Gross.
1: <laughs> I mean, if Terry Gross had been on, it must be true.
0: Well,
2: <laughs> I was thinking, I'm thinking if by Terry Gross you mean the History Channel programs about how he was, you know, trying to make the army of like eight men <laughs> or whatever. Was that the same? Yeah. Same program. Same program. <laughs> uh, oh, I
1: think you guys cut out.
0: Oh, yeah. Sorry. Can you hear us now?
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. Wacky stuff. Um, yeah, well I, what, what I was going to say is I think it uh it's interesting because there's a sort of side plot that involves Russia in the x files. Um so peak 1990s when everyone was obsessed with this yeah. kind of shit. Um forget what what season it is, but somehow Mulder ends up in a camp that's in Russia where they're experimenting with the weird alien like black goo shit that <laughs> and, like swims around your eyes, um, so I mean, it makes sense if that's been going around.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll have to watch that one. Um, I, I've I've seen I've never I've not seen that episode. I can't say.
1: I think it's it's one with Alex Krychek. Um I think it's just one or two episodes and probably one of the later seasons. Okay. I've, but I'm re-watching The X-Files, clearly, so... Yeah, it's great. It's, fresh. it's great to just
0: put yeah. on and just have it on in the background or something, I mean...
1: And someone walks in, and then there's, like, a weird gooey guy, like, crawling out of grate and you're like, yeah, this is normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: See this every day. Yeah. Um. Well, do you have anything you want to plug, Hannah, before we let you go? Uh,
1: I think that's... I think
0: not really okay well if you uh, i i gotta say this before in yeah. the
2: best example of small world when we were setting this up uh i realized that i know well at least know of two of hannah's cousins in kentucky
0: <laughs> oh
1: really
2: and i may have rented yeah. off one of them.
1: <laughs> so. you have family here i do in moorhead hell yeah
2: yeah so it's I- the, the when i when i cold call of uh, you know people that rap for the baffler and stuff in new york that's the last thing i expect to <laughs> you
1: know. i mean especially moorhead with this like tiny tiny town i mean it's got a lot of uh uh
0: you know like six degrees of separation um rob Wisman, uh shout out to rob um there's uh chuck woolery steve inskeep from npr billy ray cyrus of old town <laughs> road fame <laughs> <laughs> a lot of overlap there. Totally. Uh, that, there, yeah, there's your heartland credential. If anybody ever challenges it in the uh, esteemed ivory towers of New York City, uh, you need to wave the hillbilly cred like a <laughs> motherfucker. Man.
1: That's. Well, I was also born in Wisconsin, so I have that going for me. Hell yeah. <laughs> so... Oh
2: yeah. Yeah. Salt of the earth. Yeah.
1: And then the lights went out. Oh damn. <laughs> uh oh. So crazy. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh i'm just gonna wa there we go okay damn
2: that is that is cue up the shit. x-files yeah. theme
1: <laughs> you guys don't post the video of this do you? <laughs> No, no, no.
0: <laughs> unfortunately now yeah that, that was pretty creepy though the way it just flicked.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: um damn well hopefully you're okay hannah and hopefully the guards aren't after you um <laughs>
1: I'm all, I'm all good uh, <laughs> okay. Harvard, Harvard security if you're listening to this I'm not taking over a classroom <laughs> um,
0: Well you can check out Hannah's piece at the baffler uh, Psychic healing at the end of history and uh, what's your Twitter handle Hannah where can they find you on Twitter uh,
1: At Hannah Gaze
0: Okay G-A-I-S right Yep All right. Well um, we yeah, thank you thanks for Thanks so much Hannah it's fun Yeah this is a blast we'll have to do it again
1: yeah, totally. It's uh, great to talk with you guys. Yeah, you too. Uh, yeah. You know? ha- have a
0: great uh, rest of your day and-, and watch out for those guards. Will
1: do. <laughs> will do. <laughs> we'll see you. Alright, take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Welcome back everybody. Hope you just enjoyed that great interview with Hannah Gaze. Um you have something you want to say about it, Tom? <laughs> okay. F- uh
2: full confession, we're recording this about a week and a half after we did the actual interview. A
0: week. And I was oh, caught. Only and, I, a week.
2: and I was caught I was caught <laughs> off guard. But I was like,
0: did we just talk? To Hannah again and I. In the podcast universe, we just talked to Hannah man. Time that that just, truly is a flat circle in the podcast Yeah, that's right. It just happened. Um well anyways, we hope you enjoyed that. Uh but um there was more um news in the news. <laughs> <laughs> there was more news in the news this week that we wanted to discuss with you all. Um and uh just to kick things off um the what what i have termed in my mind as the uh Appalachian Firefest as firefest coming to Appalachia <laughs> i'm referring of course to the story in the new york times from um friend of the show in fact former guest campbell robertson um Titled, they were promised coding jobs in Appalachia. Now they say it was a fraud. Mind to Minds came into West Virginia espousing a certain dogma fostered in the world of startups and TED Talks. Students found an erratic operation. I Think I could be a good 60 minutes announcer? I think you got him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Campbell has this story in the New York Times about this company, Mind Minds, that came to um well let's how how should we dig into this tom how how, we, how do you want to dig into I them? think
2: the obvious starting point is um you know sometimes if you have a good idea having a good name is like <laughs> wor- worth trying to do it anyway <laughs> right, right. What's interesting about this is they didn't have a good name. No. To start with. (laughs) The idea, it it, it conjures up an image of somebody like scooping. Digging into somebody's
0: brains and like molding them how they want them to be. Scooping out like an ice cream scoop size of somebody's brain. You know that scene in Hannibal? When he's eating Ray Liotta's brain. Yeah. That's what it conjures the mind. <laughs> yeah. Just uh,
2: our uh, ARC overlords having a Chianti and <laughs> a side of fava beans with yeah. fucking
0: hillbilly brains. Right. Um, so just to catch everybody up, Mind Minds was a... The whole premise was, uh, it was one of these nonprofits that was supposed to teach former coal miners how to code. And in fact, we even sort of talked about it on an old episode with Elizabeth Catt. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what the exact number is. Maybe episode 27? I remember your cover art because it was so good because you took
2: this old, like fresco of the saints and just put coal mining helmets on all of them
0: (laughs) you're right you're right i think it was called working in the code mines it was and it's actually i haven't migrated it back to the free main street feed yet so it's actually on our patreon (laughs) yeah but it is in the catalog of free episodes which anyways regardless we talked if you want to you know if you want to go back and listen to it actually i should have gone back and listened to it before we did we this. might just unlock it as a supplement to this yeah for sure so it was a nonprofit called mind minds it was promising west virginians to um teach west virginians how to write computer code and then get them well-paying jobs um uh the uh so almost none of those who signed up for mind minds are working in programming now they described mine mines as an erratic operation where guarantees suddenly evaporated and firings seemed inevitable, leaving people to start over again at the bottom rungs of the wage jobs they had left behind. So it was started by these two people, and uh, this is where we get into the fire fest, the fire fest, uh, stivity. Uh, Baby, shoot this right to my goddamn veins. <laughs> <laughs> it was, start- <laughs> this is, this is, this is the sort of thing old dad dines out on. It was started by two tech people from Chicago. Um, Amanda Loucher uh, and her husband. Um, They had been working in the tech industry in Chicago. And this is the thing, I just don't really fully understand this, but I guess Amanda Loucher's brother said that he had been laid off. And um, and so... uh, Amanda. Is, she, is she, she was she originally from West Virginia? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um and so her and her husband quit their jobs and moved to Pennsylvania to open up this fucking tech thing. Okay. Which I don't you know, I don't really know anything about. Um, anyways, Miss um, Loucher now acknowledges that while she is still committed to the group's mission, the work has not been easy. Progress is difficult, she said in an email, with the current atmosphere in Appalachia, which is deeply interested in maintaining a, quote, culture. She blamed the opioid epidemic <laughs> <laughs> and the poverty culture of the region, mentioning Hillbilly Elegy, the best-selling memoir by J.D. Vance, who, like Miss Loucher, went from working-class Rust Belt roots to success in the tech sector. She added... There are generations of hard work ahead. We'll be only a tiny force working toward change in the area I grew up. None of this, neither the experience itself nor Ms. Ledger's thoughts about its difficulty strikes some former students as surprising. That is, they say how things tend to go in Appalachian. Um, so here's the business model. The business model is this. A free 16-week coding boot camp followed by paid apprenticeships with the program's for-profit arm, a software consultancy apprentices worked full-time on projects for computer cl- company clients, but were also called upon to teach in the classes they had graduated from months earlier. After working for a few months, apprentices would either go on to salary jobs at the Mind Minds company or go to a big tech firm such as Oracle. Every single one of them finds work, Miss Lotcher said of the boot camp graduates. graduates Every in-
2: <laughs> single one, <laughs> one of, of, them. of them. Yeah, they all find a job. That's a direct quote. This is like this is like echoes of uh, the law school scam from the early two thousands. Yeah, you know how like <laughs> all the schools were fudging their employment statistics because, yeah. like, I remember UK got in, in trouble because they were like, "Yeah, we're like eighty something percent employment," but they were counting like you know their graduates that were working at like you know just service jobs and anything. If you if you were
0: getting a paycheck, you counted towards their employment statistics. That's I think that's very apt analogy so as they go through this program uh they start to notice a few things um there was never much of a syllabus students would be given an assignment and spend the next few days trying to figure it out mostly by themselves the usual answers to questions multiple students said was quote google it a few quietly wondered how much their teachers really knew Unease began to settle in among some of the students. They began to learn from their teaching assistants, graduates of a recent mind mind class, that the good stable jobs promised by the group were not nearly as stable as they appeared. Firings and and resignations were routine among the staff. One of the Beckley teaching assistants, a 33-year-old named Max Turner, had already been fired, then rehired after several fruitless months of searching for programming work. Some began to suspect that the program... Suspect that the program couldn't afford the job guarantee it was advertising. Money woes did not make sense given what they saw of the founder's lifestyle. The travels worldwide, the views from an office in Chicago's Trump Tower, the ever replenishing tequila bottles at the West Virginia headquarters, the boozy house parties in Pennsylvania. This is Firefest. Why- <laughs>
1: Firefest.
2: <Yeah. laughs> uh, let's. Uh, uh, Party like rock stars. Party like rock stars. Fuck like porn stars. stars. <laughs> Mind to minds, baby. Yeah. it jar rule pops up a goddamn uh,
0: life size cake. <laughs> Code like tech stars. Man, um, so you know that's 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 pretty much the gist. Okay. Yeah. Like there, you really don't need much more uh, of it than that. There's just two things I want to point out about this, though. Okay. The first thing I want to point out is that this was made possible by a large grant from the Appalachian Regional Commission. Earl girl, baby. <laughs> Where you at, Big Earl? Big Earl. Big Earl is no longer at the ARC. Oh, yeah. um, but so shout, shout out to Big Earl for- Does sti- he follow you on Twitter still? He still follows me on Twitter. So shout out to Earl for sticking <laughs> sticking through all the tweets about uh, fucking come and- <laughs> What an abject failure his agency- <laughs> <laughs> is that he gave his life to? Um, so this came from the ARC. So, if you don't know what the ARC is, just a little, real fast, quick update. The ARC was an agency started in 1965 um, with the war on poverty. Yeah. Uh, there's specifically an act, it's called like the Appalachian Regional Development Act or some shit like that. Right. Um, its whole purpose, uh, ARC was um, the ARC. I, I, I guess you could say their whole approach to economic development in the '60s or whatever was sort of at loggerheads with the um, Office of Economic Opportunity, which was started, right. which was the War on Poverty agency. Right. The Office of Economic Opportunity, the OEO, Sergeant Shriver, and the Vista people, whatever. Right. Their approach to economic development was you go in, you try to get all the... You try to empower people politically. Yeah. Now, you know, we... Uh,
2: The legacy of which is still alive and well today. Right, right, right. Every time you work on something non-profit,
0: you gotta have community (laughs) (laughs) buy-in. That's exactly right. The thing is, is that I... uh, You know, obviously as a communist, as a Marxist, I don't think that's how you really empower people. However... I, you know i think that uh they had a good idea right in the sense that like uh they were trying to go against the grain of capitalistic development and and their basic premise was you have to empower people politically for them to get out of poverty right which is correct that's a
2: correct premise which is a general premise is correct and also you had some well i think what started out as being class traders in
0: the bunch like didn't didn't um uh, uh, Jay Rockefeller come out of... That's how he made it his way to West Virginia. West Virginia, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you had those people. Their mission eventually ran into uh, the ARC's mission. The ARC's mission was what they called growth center strategy, right? growth center theory. They would try to build up these growth centers in the region, and then by their theory... That sort of development would trickle down to the parts out in the sort of remote parts of Appalachia and the counties. Um, ARC was entirely, um, div- it was, I-, I would say, really like its entire, for the first 10 years of its existence, it did two main things: highway development, mm-hmm. built a fuckload of highways and roads. And the second thing was their sort of educational, uh, vocational program. Right. Which exactly is basically what Mind to Mind is, or Mind Minds, or whatever. This is the uberization of that, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. I love saying the uberization of that. Yeah. Things. I've noticed you've been saying it a lot lately. Yeah, that's my word yeah. du jour. It's good. I like it. Um, so, so, basically, uh, you know, ARC was not ever... Um, it ne- was never interested in like challenging existing power structures, challenging the coal industry, anything like that. It also sort of became, in terms of
2: how they mapped it out in the states and counties where they mapped it out, it also became sort of a uh, a uh, a cash grab, uh, but also just a political sort of clout thing. I mean, if you look at the ARC map, it goes down to. Places that could just vaguely be considered Appalachian, like I was, yeah. ta- I was talking with Lee Baines about this. Like Birmingham is in the ARC, yeah. Uh, Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Atlanta, a lot of Atlanta is in there. Like people, uh, somebody said, who who's the best Appalachian rappers? And I said, well, the Migos are from Henry County, and Henry <laughs> County is on the ARC map technically. So, uh, so Atlanta's in there, Which you know, I I could, you know, you could make. With the loosest definition of Appalachia, I could get to Birmingham and Atlanta or in our Appalachian places, right? Uh, but then there's some places that are like in Western Mississippi, and where it gets a little
0: dicey, you know. Yeah, I don't really know how they come up with this sort of. Maybe they have an algorithm or something. Is have some sort of formula to decide?
2: Well, the thing or, is, or 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 you just had you know people that were politicians that were powerful in these places that
0: said yep. just extend that map a little bit. That's the thing. That's the reason why Elizabethtown, which is not Appalachian by any fucking definition, way all, all the way in western Kentucky. No. The whole reason is because Mitch McConnell got it added to the ARC so he could get funding for opioid funding. and stuff. Yeah, and uh a lot of
2: um I was at the last ARC meeting they did in Clay County and I was there with two guys from Munfordville, which is kind of western Kentucky, west central Kentucky. And uh they were saying cuz I asked them I was like they were like one of the most western point, part like counties on that map. And they said, "Well, yeah, well back in the day when they were drawing this up, we needed a landfill built." And they had, like, a couple of these projects, and so we had to, like, wow. leverage our political clout to get... Wow. I don't know if that's Anderson County. I forget what county Munfordville's in, but to get them added to the ARC map so they could get money for it. Right. So that's a lot of how this stuff comes about. Like, county that could vaguely be considered Appalachian needs ARC money to do X project.
0: Right. And the, and the ARC has been systematically reduced to funding over the years, blah, blah, blah. I mean... Um, but from its earliest inception, it was, a, it was purely to sort of exist within the confines of private development, private, uh, sort of corporate development of the mountains. Yeah. Um, if we are, uh, you know, there's a few wacky things they did in the seventies. I don't want to go too far down this road. Um, after the Buffalo Creek spell in 1972, they basically agreed, with and Coal that the dam broke as an act of God. <laughs> yeah. they, uh They, at one point in time, I think it was Alvin Arnett, their executive director, suggested that entire regions be given over to the coal companies and just depopulated. Um, because that, that I was- I wonder if he's any akin to Jared Arnett. <laughs> so yeah, that would be a pretty funny thing. Um, and then, you know, famously, I'd say the funniest fucking thing that- Arc ever did was this satellite um, educational program that they had in the seventies, um, where they launched a satellite, and the whole point was to like beam down educational programs, which could have just done been done by television, but you know you dig you peel back the layers and it was just a contract out to a satellite company, uh, <laughs> like, and so
2: that's like that's always the thing. That's always the thing, dude. They, the the thing is. It's just like like coal here. Like when they do, you see them doing like what they call coal synergy projects, like the bri- bridges to nowhere. You yeah, hear that a lot yeah. of times, and these different road projects. And you know they get are like different pots of federal money to do these projects because they're building infrastructure. But what it is is they're doing incidental mining yeah so basically they're building this this road that that n- we nobody needs makes yeah. no fucking sense whatsoever, but they're doing it as a way to get around the permitting process <laughs> to mine coal, so it's like, oh well. We slipped on a banana peel building this road, and it looks like
0: there's coal (laughs) here. Well, we're just going to take it, as per the agreement. Right. And in this case, it was like, well, uh, oh, shit. I guess we slipped on a banana peel, and we got a satellite, folks. (laughs) Let's use it. But again, the answer is never, like, buy new textbooks or uh, anything like that. Never build up educational infrastructure. It's like, how can we, like... You know, give some handouts to our friends in private industry and other stuff like this. You know, our,
2: our buddy John used to always, and I used to think it was, I'd never tell him this, but I always thought it was the dumbest thing when he was talking about the Space Needle Spa. Mm. Uh, so, uh, Martin Terrence's friend wanted to, his big idea for economic development in the circa 2012 13 was to build a spa in the exact likeness of the Seattle Space Needle, but to do it in Appalachia. <laughs> and I thought that was the dumbest thing, but if you look at it, the ARC had their fair share
0: of Space Needle spas. They've had many. Um, which brings me to my second point, or, you know, the first point was that uh, this is, I just wanted to note where this money came from. It came from the Power Initiative, which was, um, I literally named in the, in that essay that I wrote,
2: um, I would also say you and me, and even some others, are sort of the granddaddies of the power initiative. Yeah, I'd say that's... we our fingerprints are on the power <laughs> initiative. Very sure,
0: yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate for sure. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. So the second thing I wanted to point out is that this is not an isolated thing at all. You can look at the fucking ARC fund, like the 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 organizations and projects that they funded. Um in the same year that they funded Mind Minds, and it's just a litany, just a list of pure Ponzi schemes. Oh, we yeah. Were just, that's of, what we were just... A veritable cornucopic <laughs> plethora of Ponzi schemes. So that's what we are just talking about. There's um, It's not even a useful analogy. It's not even a useful analogy. I mean, it's not even an analogy or a metaphor, a clever metaphor to say that like economic development in places like Appalachia is a Ponzi scheme. It's literally a Ponzi skin. It is
2: a Ponzi skin. Straight up. Yeah.
0: Um, You know, we joke about, like, everybody's
2: ideas about making, like, uh, soap out of horse cum and stuff like that. (laughs) That's the kind of shit we get. Honestly. Seriously. That people pitch with a straight fucking face that no serious adult anywhere would take seriously, but they expect us to bite on it. And usually, that's just the guys for some bigger sort of thing that whoever's starting the horse cum soap company... (laughs) (laughs) is trying to get money for
0: (laughs) yeah and so the point that i want to make with that is that you see a lot of people on twitter and stuff saying like oh jd vance like oh this is on jd vance blah blah i just want to say fuck jd vance but this is not just J.D. Vance. <laughs> this has existed a long time before J.D. was around. I I would go so far as to say that the ARC is just as fucking complicit in all of this shit. Because they operate on the same philosophy, the same mentality as yeah. what J.D. Vance is.
2: Well, I think a lot of people saw, and I mean rightfully yeah. so, that the Mind Minds woman. Like, literally quoted, named. Quote, yeah. re- literally na- And then yeah. they just seized on that to dogpile on it. Right. right, right yeah and I have no love loss for j d but this has been going on.
1: For
0: yeah, me. it's been going on and it and it hints at a systemic approach, a long traditional systemic approach to development in the mountains yeah um and uh and so if I just had any like sort of rebuttal to that or any sort of solution to it, and I know we've just been ha- fucking uh, hammering away at this from day one, but it's it's class struggle. If you really want to change people's circumstances, they have to become uh, empowered, whether politically or um, sort of, you know, in the workplace collectively or whatever, to be able to challenge local power structures, to then be able to have control over their own resources and have their own autonomy. Until that happens... You're just going to get more Ponzi schemes. Yeah. And so, I mean... Yeah. And and by design,
2: the Ponzi schemes make that sort of collective action more difficult. Mm-hmm. The Uberization. The Uber... <laughs> was waiting for you to chuckle at the The Uberization of these little... I don't know which... I guess Ponzi schemes, yeah. Like, just... It it makes sort of it makes class struggle more difficult in terms of like withholding your labor and strike situations and whatever because it sort of makes everybody you know i mean by the nature of like say a pyramid scheme right everybody owns their own. Business. That's the thing yeah. about those like inverted, like whatever you call, what do you call them? multi-level marketing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the Christian name. You're for responsible
0: the, for your own uh, sales and your own, uh, you know, success and all this other stuff. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so the the reason that these are basically Ponzi. I mean, I guess they're not. There's not. I guess it's not a one for one thing. I literally just said it's not even a metaphor. It's literally a Ponzi scheme so it's not really that but it is a scam i would say they're more pyramid schemes than ponzi schemes. ponzi is just more fun to say oh, okay yeah it makes you sound smarter <laughs> for sure it's a peer <laughs> it's like enron really
2: which is a ponzi scheme oh okay <laughs> sorry yeah i guess it is a ponzi
0: scheme regardless it's a fucking scam the whole point is to diffuse dissent to, def- to manage expectations and outrage about material conditions and all that other stuff. If you're really looking for some sort of, like, liberatory um, sort of political vision, look at, like, the teacher strikes in West Virginia. That's what it would look like for things to get better around here. Yeah, It's not going to fucking be the ARC and other people writing grants and fucking nonprofits and all that other stuff. Like, that... that is just re entrenching the sort of status quo, these the same business interests. I mean shit, we've been talking
2: about this for years. That it's it, you're exactly right, the same business interests. It's like anytime there is something new that looks like it could be quasi legit, not in terms from our Marxist materialist perspective, but in terms of like what you know. Yeah for the capitalists like uh, something that would actually create some decent paying jobs by their definitions, okay? All of it goes to the people that already have the money and can get in on the ground floor of like the emerging technologies or whatever. Yeah. But usually it's not even profitable in that sense. Yeah. Usually what they're doing is just creating these little shell businesses to get federal money and like to have like it to like ready-made fronts
0: that already have popular support to yeah. launder money, really, essentially. Yeah, because the political support is out there for it. Because, look, it's a sexy story to be like, we t- we turned around a failing former mining community and
2: so-and-so. And now Jill makes $13 an hour <laughs> right. making horse cum soap.
0: <laughs> If any business did open up making horsego there's a dildo factory in West Virginia that yeah. we wanted to send Tanya to. Um maybe if they start making horse cum soap, uh we'll get on that beat. Yeah. <clears throat> well, anyways, so uh if you want to read the story in its entirety, uh in its, in its in its in its in its full teeth grinding entirety, which it will make you grind your teeth. Uh again, that's in the New York Times, the, by Campbell Robertson. They were promised coding jobs in Appalachia. Now they say it was a fraud, because it was a fraud. Um, so yeah, I hope you read it with a um, sort of like universal lens on it, like understand that this isn't just an isolated thing. Like, this is the this is the entire approach to economic development in 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 uh, Appalachia, and uh, it's not helping anybody. In fact, yeah. it's making things worse. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I guess.
2: I guess, yeah. I guess you're right. I guess the ARC stuff is more leans more Ponzi scheme, than the pyramid scheme, because Ponzi scheme is just you get a bunch of advanced in, investors and just run off with their money. No, okay. In a pyramid scheme, you start your own business, but like you're like way under a bunch of people, uh-huh. and most of your proceeds go up, right? While you keep very little of it, right, 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 right. Which is, you know,
0: honestly, just a normal labor job. <laughs> to, to, right. You know. Right. Well, it's like you've always said. Um, right now, I mean, it's been this way for a long time. But yeah, right now the hillbillies are a rich seam of grant money, and uh, you know the ARC and other nonprofits are going to continue to mine the fuck out of that seam of grant money um, because look, it's not like it's not like you're raking in millions, but it's it is it's not insignificant. It's man, not either. insignificant either, no. um, and uh, you know people. Our fucking vultures. Vultures will sit upon this place and just tear as much fucking capital out of it as left. Oh, until it's nothing. Until it's nothing. Until it's, yeah, until it's just been picked apart. There's no, no fucking meat on the bones left at all. <laughs> just a skeleton. I've been racking
2: my brain today thinking, based on our text conversation the other day, like, where are the choke points here? You know? Mm hmm. And I've been trying to think about it not in terms of being like a non profit worker in this environment, but as just sort of like just a community member in the Appalachian transition movement. What could we do to create sort of like a like you like like we're talking- like the choke points of some sort of
0: labor struggle in this context and well, I think it's education for sure um if you see, if you keep grinding away at that, um, like just look at what they were able to do, like basically shutting down government over that strike. Yeah, um, is not insignificant, and especially if you've, if you, uh, you know, you can get other industries on board with that as well, logistics, and I think healthcare. I mean, not, uh, those are the two big industries around here. Industries, I use that term. I, you know, what I'm saying. Like those are the two big employers, education. And healthcare, yeah, and there, um, you know, they are the uh, institutions that sort of keep the wheels moving, yeah. And so if you could, those are the choke points, I think. Um, if you could find a way to uh, shut those down, because um, you know we don't have a whole. lot. I mean, it's not the coal industry anymore. We know that. Mm. I mean, maybe the gas industry in some ways, but even then, it employs so few people.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the oil and gas is sort of a set-it-and-forget-it industry. Right, right. So it's harder. Yeah. The service industry is just so, you know, like that sort of low-wage work is like, it, that that becomes difficult because there's just, you know... Well, they it's, don't value their workers nearly as much, and they will just go find other people. Who doesn't right? Because they're not—they don't care about quality control either.
0: Well, know? and it's also because there is no look—you don't. Have, there's no credentialization. You don't have to go get a college degree to work in the service industry. Yeah. No. Whereas you have to do in the healthcare and the education industry. now I'm not saying, I don't know. Anyways, it is also a choke point, though. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, because look, if you could shut down all three of those things—healthcare, education, and the service industry. You'd be you'd be in business, man. <laughs> you'd be you'd be you'd be living like a Frenchman. <laughs> Anyways, the larger point that I wanted to make here is fuck nonprofits and fuck this whole approach to what you know. A lot of people will try to tell you, like, look, that's how we get social justice. This is how we we're fighting for justice. Fuck that. It's not. It's not. No. It's it's all it is is it's a uh, you know it's making you feel like you're you know making a difference in the world well the thing the thing too about it is
2: all of that money is just like i've i've been in rooms with these people i've been on city council here in this town i bet like i know how they think about these arc grants and all this kind of stuff you get a big grant and all of a sudden it dissolves into whatever accounts these mystery accounts (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know? And then, like, when the ARC reporting comes around, they're not going to hold your feet to the fire. Right. Because you butter their bread. That's like right. The, some of the most powerful people in the country are, like, local politicians in places where the tax bases are very small and there's not a ton of political organization. Yeah. Because the people in Washington are
0: most beholden to those people. That is exactly correct. Um, So, you know, just be on the lookout for scams like this. And, uh... <laughs> If you see something, say something. Right. Tell, tell, tell a local Antifa. Yeah, tell a local Antifa or tell us. We'd love to shine a light on it. Yeah. All right. Well, that about sums it up for the week. Um, hopefully, you uh, you made it this far and uh, enjoyed the episode, the interview with Hannah. Just want to remind everybody to please go to our Patreon to check that out. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. And uh, I'll post a link to Campbell's story in, And Hannah's story In the uh, episode bio You get today. a two
2: for this week
0: Yeah that's right Double, double the reading um, So yeah go support us on Patreon We got good stuff there all the time And uh, you
1: won't be disappointed And uh, so yeah We'll see you on the Patreon